the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finn, and we've got a really cool show today for you today. In this half hour of the show, we'll be interviewing Detroit's own Howard Lupovich. We've had him on many times before, but this time Howard has authored a book, Tremendous Research, Translatanian Paradise, A History of Budapest Jewish Community, 1738-1938. Whoa, this is cool stuff. It really is. And the second half hour of the portion, we'll be talking about the portion of Bo, which can be found in Exodus and Chapter 10 and following, we've got the good Passover stories coming up in this week's portion. We've got music throughout the show, a dynamite story at the end. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. Shots were fired from inside the city of Shechem at an IDF outpost. No one was hurt. The IDF is investigating. IDF forces came under fire while on a counterterrorism mission in Jenin. Two Palestinians, one a Hamas commander, was killed in the gun battle. Hamas published the first documentation of Israeli citizen Avera Megagistu, who has been held by Hamas since he entered Gaza in 2014. Megistu is shown in a film appearing on the Al-Aqsa Brigade website. A Jewish man in Crown Heights section of Brooklyn was intentionally run over and what police are calling a hate crime. The man suffered a broken leg. A man was arrested and charged with aggravated assault for slashing a Hasidic man with a knife in the city of Brooklyn, or the borough of Brooklyn, and a high school in Overland Park, Kansas, was vandalized with swastikas and anti-Semitic graffiti on 
Martin Luther King Day. Let's get that word out, yes. Over 1,100 entities adopted the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism during 2022. So far, 30 U.S. states, 7 of the 10 Canadian provinces, and a host of U.S. cities have taken the measure. And finally, listen to this one. Israel was ranked fifth in the world for percentage of the population who volunteer. 42% of Israelis volunteer. First in the world is Canada at 79%. The U.S. is eighth at 25%. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Hey, Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Wayne State's own Professor Howard Lupovich, who has uh, usually have him on for uh, talking about various and sundry historical things, but this time... Howard has written a new tome, Translithanian Paradise, A History of Budapest Jewish Community. And thank you so much for coming on, Howard, to talk about it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Rabbi. That's great. Now, from a marketing point of view, if I were, say, like in Barnes & Nobles, Barnes & Noble, I was in the history section, and I was kind of like perusing the shelf. I would be more inclined to take a book off the shelf and look at it if it said a history of the Budapest Jewish community or a Hungarian paradise than saying, for example, the Translithanian paradise. And I want to thank you so much for introducing a new five-syllable word into my lexicon. But why why the title? Great, uh, thank you. That's a great place to start. And I've gotten that question quite a bit. Um, and I think I think the title has sent people scampering to Google to look up Translitanian. So let me explain the word, and then I'll explain what the title means. Uh, so the, so Translitania, as you know, there was a there was an empire called the Austro-Hungarian Empire, yeah, ruled by the Habsburgs. It was a dual monarchy. It had two parts: the Habsburg, the Austrian side, and the Hungarian side. And the dividing line, the sort of the geographic or symbolic dividing line between the two halves of the monarchy was the Lita River. And so the Austrian part of the dual monarchy was called Cislitania. That was its official name, this side of the Lida. And the Hungarian side of the monarchy was called Translitania, the other side or across the Lida River. So that's what the word Translitania or Translitanian means. Now, the phrase itself, Translitanian paradise, uh, this is not my term for Budapest or for, or for the situation of Jews in Budapest. Actually, uh, an early Zionist named Alexander Marx who was a contemporary of Theodor Herzl, 
uh, and one of the first Zionist congresses, he was talking about how everywhere in Europe Jews have to face anti-Semitism. But for Jews, Budapest is a Translitanian paradise. And that's why I chose it as the title, because it's an expression how Budapest, prior to the First World War, was one of very few places where Jews could live with little or no anti-Semitism. Okay, so now, let me just, let's, let's keep keep with this for a second. So, if you were living in Vienna, say, you're a Jew living in Vienna in uh, 1880, okay, and you're a smart person, you went to college, you may have some kind of degree, some kind of professional would you know, would this be part of your day-to-day, what do you call it, referring to your, your cousin in Budapest, that he lives in Translitania? Great question. First of all, you, well, yes, most people were aware that the official name of the monarchy was Cis and Translitania. Most people knew that. Um, if And I don't think they would have ever thought of calling Budapest a Translitanian paradise. Like you say, they might have called it a Hungarian paradise. They were aware that it was a good place for Jews. But, but in Vienna, which was just replete with anti-Semitism, that's where the, you know, the, the anti-Semitic mayor of Vienna, Karl Lueger, he nicknamed Budapest Judapest. So, uh-huh. if that, uh, that, and that was much more common than my title. Judapest was like saying Jew York. It was a way of demeaning the city because there were so many Jews there. And it wasn't just the number of Jews because Vienna also had a lot of Jews. But in Budapest, Jews were such an integral part of the city and the culture and the politics and the economy and every aspect of city life. Uh, that's interesting. I have actually referred to Huntington words referred to as Jew in the Woods and West Bloomfield that, as West Jewfield. I've heard that too. Say it's, it's a way of not only saying that there are a lot of Jews or there seem like there are a lot of Jews, but it's a way of saying that Jews are not only conspicuous but important and integral. You, you really can't tell the story of Huntington Woods without mentioning the Jews, and you can't tell the story of Budapest without mentioning the Jews. Okay, so let's, let's talk about first about, about Budapest. Buda, the word Budapest is actually a portmanteau, talking about five-syllable yes. words. It's a composite of a whole bunch of things. So how did Budapest become Budapest? Well, it's a great question because until 1873, there was no place called Budapest. There were three separate cities that were amalgamated in 1873 to form Budapest. One was Buda, which was also called in German or in Yiddish was called Offen. Then there was Pest. And then there was a town uh, outside, just down up the river from Buda, called Old Buda. Obuda in Hungarian or Alpen in German or Yiddish. And the three towns, Obuda, Buda, and Pest, were combined to create Budapest. Okay. And we could. It's, a, it's, it's actually, you know, the parallel is often made too. Before there was New York City as it is now, Manhattan and Brooklyn were separate boroughs. And the first step towards creating New York City was the amalgamation of, of, of Manhattan and Brooklyn. And, and, and that's similar to Buddha and Pest and Obuda, but it's also similar because in the same way that Manhattan and Brooklyn have such different personalities as cities, so too Buddha and Pest and Obuda. Had very different personalities. Uh, so, why was there this merger? Was it an economic, political, sociological, all of the above, none of the above? All of the of... above, all of the above. Primarily, it was because um, Pest was the was the center of everything. It was the center of commerce. Was the center of culture. Was the center of politics. Buddha was was a quieter, quainter place. It was old money, and 
you know, it, it just it simply made no more sense. No, it didn't make sense anymore for them to be separate cities. They they all benefited from being together, especially when bridges were constructed across the Danube beginning in the 1840s. And suddenly it just uh, the cities were no longer as separate as they had once been. And from all the all the reasons you mentioned, it just made more sense to create one large metropolis. Mm-hmm. Um, is it the relationship similar like Manhattan to Brooklyn? Like if you live in Manhattan and you look down on people yes. who live in Brooklyn, if you live in Pest, you look down on people who live in Buda? Well, I think it actually goes both ways because Brooklyn people look down on Manhattan as well. So uh, there, there were different sorts of people. You know, Pest was, like Manhattan, Pest was more diverse. There were more, uh, Buda was more, more. it was, it was a, a larger majority of Christians uh, and, and fewer minorities like Jews or like Slavs. Uh, so Buddha had that sort of older, quaint, traditional, medieval city feel to it. Pest was a big boom town where everyone was there. So if, so if you like a place that was more cosmopolitan and more worldly and diverse, you like Pest better. If you wanted something old-fashioned where there weren't too many kinds of people, where there weren't too many of the undesirables, you'd live in Buddha. And obviously, most of the Jews, 90% of the Jews, lived in Pest. Uh, understood. Okay, so are there historic records going back, I don't know, any time after the destruction of the first temple of Jews living in the region, Howard Lipovich? Great question, great question. Well, uh, there was a... There were there are some records of an ancient Jewish community, of, or of some Jews, I suppose, who lived there during Roman times. Um, and there was a, a medieval Jewish community in Buda, which really flourished more under Muslim rule than under Turkish rule than under European rule. But most of the story is a modern story. In other words, prior to the 18th century, there's very little in the way of a story there. There, are, there are, there's a small you know, enclave. You know, the the Jewish community of let's say 16th or 17th century Buddha was on the edge of the was on the edge of the Ashkenazic world. Was on the edge of the European world. Uh, it was an important Jewish community in certain ways. It produced a couple of good scholars, but it wasn't significant. And it, and it really came to an end. The Jews were evicted from Buddha when when uh, it was reconquered by the the Habsburgs in 1686. Uh, at which point there were no Jews in Buddha, and there really weren't any Jews in Obuda or Pest either. The reason I start my book in 1738 is 1738 is the point where in the town of Obuda, which was privately owned by a, a noble family, Jews were invited to come live there. And that was the beginning. That was the nucleus of what became the Jewish community of Budapest. Okay. So how did those Jews then develop? So there, every Jew who lived in Hungary then was basically a transplant from someplace else. I'm assuming from Galicia, Poland, maybe Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. More or less. Actually, they they came in a couple of different waves. It's sort of parallel to the United States. The older wave came from other parts of Central Europe. Like the older Jews came from Germany, came from the, a lot of Jews came from Bohemia and Moravia. Jews coming from Galicia came a little bit later. They were a, a later wave. So yes, but most Hungarian Jews are are typically not more, you know, in the 19th century, are typically not more than a generation or two remain, removed from being immigrants. Okay, now, so there is a phenomena among Hungarian Jews. There's a very large enclave of uh, Hungarian Jews living in the Borough Park section of Brooklyn, and they don't speak Yiddish. They're really up, they're really like staunch, we speak Hungarian. What, what's yes. up with that? That's a great question. And that's not exactly a Budapest question. It's more of a Hungary question, but it's related. Um, what it came down to is this. 
um, well, the the uh, the Yiddish-speaking community in Hungary was mostly in northeastern Hungary, you know, and the border of Galicia, the border of where, where, where those Jews, where the Austrian would come from. And once they were in Hungary, uh, a couple of things happened simultaneously, really beginning in the 1860s. First of all, this, uh, public schooling became available. So there were a lot of Jews, even Jews who were observant, who sent their kids to public school and where they would learn Hungarian. Secondly, also, you know, uh, one of the things Jews felt, they felt very attached to the country, to being Hungarian. And the nature of Hungarian nationalism or Hungarian national identity, it placed a lot more emphasis on language than it did on religion. So to be Jewish and Hungarian at the same time required really just to be a Hungarian speaker. So if you were a Hungarian speaker from Jew or even a Hungarian Hasidic Jew, you were considered as Hungarian as uh, a Jew who was assimilated. So language was all important in Hungary. And so Jews, it was uh, the, the learning the language was available. There were obviously benefits because the country itself was functioning more and more in Hungarian. And there really wasn't any downside to it. Uh, you know, it was the language of the land and you could be, you could live, you could do both at the same time. And so really it's the turn of the 20th century. This is when Hungarian Jews and even Hungarian observant Jews really become Hungarian speaking. Okay. Our guest today is Howard Lubavitch from the Cohen Haddow Center at Wayne State University here in Detroit, has written a wonderful book called Translithanian Paradise, a History of Budapest Jewish Community, 1738-1938. Okay, so you mentioned before when we opened up about the, the title Translithanian Paradise, was referring to the fact that you're, that Budapest Jews didn't have to worry about anti-Semitism. Okay, so this is a multi-part question. You can deal with it any way you like. So what was different about the general populace of Budapest at this time that they were so welcoming of their Jews where in other parts of Europe there was lots of anti-Semitism? And then what changed that Hungary, in my mind today, in 2000 and, and whatever, is an anti-Semitic country? Howard Lipovich. So, uh, so great, great questions. I'll do, the, I'll do the second one first. What changed was, A, the First World War really was a seismic change for Jews who lived in Central and Eastern Europe, especially because the map was redrawn. Uh, Hungary was three times the size before the war than it was after the war. The Treaty of Trianon, Hungary was forced to give away two-thirds of its territory. So I'll put a pin in that for a second. So before the war, Hungary was this large, multi-ethnic multi-religious country. It had multiple minorities, and Jews were one of a number of ethnic and religious minorities. So that, that's really, it's one of the truisms of Jewish history, I would say. In a situation where Jews are one of several minorities, they tend to do significantly better than the situation where they're the only ethnic minority. Because when, when we're the only ethnic or religious minority, it's very easy to single us out and to target us. But when Jews are one of 10 different minorities, well, you know, uh, other minorities maybe are targeted instead, or it's, it's harder to single out Jews. So that was the first thing. But the second thing is, from the vantage point, you know, it's kind of a math problem before the war. In, uh, before the war, the all-important thing in politics was to have a national majority. And the ethnic Hungarians, the Magyars, in their own country, they were only 45% of the population. 
Jews were 8% of the population. So if you do the math, 45% plus 8% equals national majority. And so the Hungarians reached the conclusion, if they embrace Jews as Hungarians of the Jewish persuasion, and like I said, uh, asking Jews to embrace the language, if Jews are redefined as Hungarians, then the majority of people in the country are Hungarian, and the Hungarians have a national majority, and that works to their advantage. And Budapest was kind of the epitome of that. Okay. In Budapest, these are not, not only where Jews were welcomed as Hungarians, but this is where this is a Jewish community that really immersed itself in Hungarian identity and culture and language and everything. So that was working in favor of Jews before the war. The other thing that happened before the war, and then I'll tell you after. The other thing that happened before the war is before the war, there was this natural partnership between Hungarian Jews and the Hungarian nobility. Now, the Hungarian nobility was the dominant part of Hungarian politics and society until the Second World War. So before the First World War, there was this division of labor, so to speak, where the Hungarian nobility, they basically were the, the government bureaucracy, and Hungarian Jews took care of commerce and industry. Now, after the war, when Hungary was shrunk down to one-third of its size, first of all, the government was much smaller, so there were fewer government positions for nobles. So nobles began to move into the area of commerce and industry and became competitors of Jews instead of partners of Jews in building the society. That's first. Now, with regard to the the, the ethnic, the, the, the national majority issue is that after the, the Hungary that remained when it was reduced was overwhelmingly Hungarian. All of the, the minority sections of the country were given away to Slovakia, to Romania, to Croatia. So Jews were no longer needed to be seen at, to, in order to, to be seen as Hungarian in order to establish a Hungarian national majority. So that's the, that, that's what she, that's what the, the larger things that changed the war. One other thing that happened at, at the conclusion of the First World War, there was a communist revolution in Budapest, which most Jews were against, which most Jews were terrified of. But as often happens with communist revolutions, there were a couple conspicuous Jews leading the revolution. And so the enemies of the revolution saw it as a Jewish revolution. You know, all Bolsheviks are Jews. Mm. All Jews are Bolsheviks. So that spurred more uh, animosity towards you. So all of these things happen to transform this wonderful situation, this paradise situation before the war to a situation that got much worse very quickly after the war. Okay, thank you for that. Um, okay, so our guest again is, is Howard Lipovich. We're talking about Translatinian Paradise, the History of the Hungarian Jew, the Tome, a book that Professor Lipovich has authored and is available for your purchase. So did the Jews, when they were welcomed in to help make the majority, did they sort of like you have, I'm reminded of like what's going on in Israel where you have like a minority party is the one that sort of tips the scale in favor of the majority and then the minority uses that to their advantage. Where is, was that going on? Also, were they were they taking advantage of this packet? We're we're making your coalition. Uh, I, I, not really. I mean, I think the situation was more akin to Jews in America, where American Jews are overwhelmingly liberal or lean left, uh, and so uh, the, the American Jews are, are assumed they're going to assume they're going to support left wing parties in Hungary. Also, the same proportion. Um, 80 or 90 percent of Hungarian Jews were liberals. They, they allied with the moderate left in Hungarian. Now, I emphasize moderate 
because Hungarian Jews, whether they leaned to the left or the right, what they really didn't like was extreme positions in both directions. But they so they were supportive of the centrist party, and they were they played an important role in it. Uh, did they tip the scales? That might be saying that might be saying a little bit too much. Maybe in the politics of the city of Budapest itself, maybe. But in Hungary in general, Jews were important. They were an important constituency. But I wouldn't say they were they were a decisive constituency. Maybe the analogy is New York City, where the Jewish vote is very important and is actively courted. That was probably true in Budapest as well. The rest of Hungary, not so much. Okay, understood. So it reminds me of the change of demographics after World War One. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was uh, asked, uh, I think in the early 1960s, or was someone mentioned that in America there seems to be like less or no anti-Semitism. And the Rebbe responded, it's the same anti-Semitism, it's just that it's under the surface, you don't see it right now. But if situational change, you'll see the anti-Semitism just like abrupt right up. So it seems like during that period of time, from 1738 until 1914, when Jews were needed, so they were everybody's best friend. As soon as they weren't needed, it was like, well, we don't need you anymore, so therefore. So it seems like the sentiment was like under the surface for those almost 200 years. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'll, and I'll tell you who said almost the exact same thing as the Rebbe said was Theodore Herzl. Herzl, Herzl grew up and he lived in, in Budapest till he was 17, and then he went to Vienna. And one of the last interviews he gave um, in his, and actually, he also saw Budapest as remarkable. You know, he described Budapest for Jews as an island in a sea of anti-Semitism, you know, in an oasis, an oasis in an anti-Semitic desert. But the last interview he gave before he died in, 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 uh, in 1904, he gave it with the, the, the liberal Jewish weekly newspaper in Budapest called Edyen Lashag, or Equality. And he was asked by the editor, who was not Zionist, do you think Hungarian Jews should become Zionist? And this is remarkable, because this is Herzl. He said, he had this deep love of Budapest. He said, no, you don't need to become Zionists, but eventually you will be. You, you will have to. And very, you know, very presciently, he really foresaw, like you said, and like there was the possibility of the situation changing. But in 1903, Herzl believed that the situation for Jews in, in Budapest, in Hungary in general, was fine. He saw no problems. But he did imagine the possibility of problems. When situations can change, the situation for Jews can change in very surprising ways. Okay. So now, so since uh, 1914, things have changed drastically in Hungary. They had a communist revolution. The revolution was deposed. You have socialism in there. You have different people uh, taking over or, or blatant anti-Semites. And... It should. How do you feel about uh, Jews and like a kosher tour of of Budapest or Greater Hungary, Howard? How do I how do I feel about it? Yeah, what's there to see? Should would... well, actually, actually, there's quite a bit. You know, until 1990, the answer. You know, from 1945 or from you know from the Shoah until 1990, between Hitler and Stalin, there was nothing to see. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, you know since 1990, since the communists left, there's been this remarkable resurgence. I'll, I'll give you a statistic. In 1988, just before the end of the Cold War, when Hungary was still communist, the number of Jewish children receiving Jewish education was estimated at about 30. By 1992, in Budapest, there were four day schools. One of them, the Anna Frank School, had 1,000 students. 
And these were day schools of different denominations. You know, the Ronald Lauder School was an Orthodox school. So since 1990, there has been this resurgence. Uh, one of the interesting parts of the Jewish community now is is that before the war, um, before the war, there weren't that there, there were Hasidim there, but they're mostly Hungarian Hasidim. There weren't that many Lubavitchers in in Budapest. That was sort of not their territory. But since 1990, the Hasidim who came back, who returned, now it's Chabad. Like everywhere else in the world, where First, they weren't Hasidim, and now there are. There is a Chabad house there. There's a Chabad rabbi there. In fact, uh, when I was writing the book, the Chabad rabbi, he actually helped me because he runs the Chevrashas in addition to uh, running Chabad. And I was writing about the, the, the Budapest Chevrashas 100 years ago, and he gave me some of the information. But So there is a presence. So uh, I would say this. Budapest today has, mo- has more kosher restaurants than Detroit does. I think six, seven kosher restaurants, all all basically in the same neighborhood. There are a lot of synagogues there now, some of which are Orthodox synagogues. And, of course, there's Chabad there as well. So if you wanted to take a kosher tour, there's plenty of food, certainly. But there's also plenty to see uh, because what was the – well, what was Jewish there, a lot of it is still there. But the Jewish community that has that has re, you know, risen from the ashes, so to speak, since 1990, is a very vibrant and remarkable Jewish community. I mean, they're struggling right now under Orban, uh, really, other, really other than Chabad. Chabad has they sort of made a deal with Orban, but the rest of the Jews are struggling there. It's, it's harder to be openly Jewish than it was, but they're still there, and it's it's a very vibrant Jewish community. Okay, one last question for you, Howard, and this one's really my my tongue is deeply implanted in my cheek for this question. Sure. Steven Spielberg buys the movie rights to, to Translithian Paradise. Who plays Howard Lupovich? Who plays the author? Yes. Who plays I, the... I'm not sure Howard Lupovich would actually be in that okay. be in that book because he he didn't live there and he wasn't from there. You're, you're the narrator. But, unless they had a scene. Well, I, well, if I was the narrator, obviously it would have to be someone you know, some top, some top of the line Hollywood actor. You know, naturally it would be George Clooney or Tom Hanks or maybe Steven Spielberg. I don't know. Okay, I'm sure you've never been asked that question before, have you? Never, okay, never. There you go. First, I never I would, heard it here I, on I the Jewish Ma- Go ahead. I would take Matt. I would take Matt Damon too. By the way, Matt Damon. There you go. Okay, um, I would audition. <clears throat> but anyway, okay. Our guest today has been Professor Howard Lupovich of Wayne State University, and uh, the book that we're talking about is Translithanian Paradise: A History of the Budapest Jewish Community, 1738-1938. It is published by Purdue University Press and available on Amazon wherever you find your books. Well, thank you so much. And uh, is there going to be a sequel to, to Translithanian Paradise, Howard? Uh, well, the, the the part after, I mean, the, I stopped in 1938 because Budapest during the Shoah has really been written up by a number of other people. I mean, the sequel to the book is a book written by Tim Cole about the Budapest ghetto during this under Nazi rule. So I think it's already kind of been written. I, I, it doesn't need to be done because it's already been done real, really well. Okay, great. That's going to do it. So we wish you continued success, and thank you so much for coming on. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Rabbi. Okay, take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. 
That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Hey, Shul Fidman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. That was really cool. He's always a good interview. For your listening pleasure, this is Gershon Uri. The song is MS. It's true. You were the first one. You'll be the last one. Refer, of course, to God. There's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. 
Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Herschelfin here, listening to the Jewish Shower. Up next for you, Klezmer Enthusiasts. This is one of my favorite songs. This is called Nifty's Freilochs. It was written by Naftali Brandwine back in the 30s, I believe. The group doing it is called the Old Klezmer Band. They're not very old at all, from what I see. Up next, this is Yankee Hill, and this is a Yishai Reboy medley. Yishai Reboy is really making waves these days. Let's hear
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. 
Herschel Sundman. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. <clears throat> Excuse me. This week is the portion of Bo. It is uh, found in chapter 10 of uh, the, port, the book of Exodus and deals with the Exodus of Egypt. It's, it's, <laughs> this is it. This is where the Exodus occurs. We talk about the book of Exodus. Well, the Exodus is in portion of Bo. We're going to focus on the uh, killing of the firstborn, which is like the most dramatic of all the ten plagues. What what was the deal? Why was it that of after we'd gone through this whole series of seven plagues last week and three two plagues this week, why does it have to culminate with the killing of the firstborn specifically? And such it was. It was so devastating. It said that there was no house that did not have somebody get killed. If there was a firstborn, of course, the firstborn got killed. If there was no firstborn, then the father got killed. And as it happened, since the Egyptians were so promiscuous, promiscuous, it was possible there were several firstborns in every house. Um, Like, whose kid was that? How come he died also? He's my secondborn, right? No, no, he's somebody else's firstborn. Oh, okay. You get the idea. So what's the deal? So we see in the aftermath of the killing of the firstborn that there are many mitzvahs that have to do with firsts. The Almighty basically says, the firsts are mine. Based on the firstborn that you, uh, like for example, there's the redemption of the firstborn or as it was supposed to be, the firstborn were supposed to be dedicated to working in the temple. But because of the golden calves of the tribe of Levi took over and there had to be a redemption of the firstborn. But there's lots of other firsts also. There's the first of the, of the produce and the first of the shearings and the first of the wine and the first of the oil and the first of the sacrifices. And there's lots of, and God said, if it's first, it belongs to me. So what then is the deal with the killing of the firstborn? It's not that it's because of this, therefore this. It's more like because of that, therefore this. Let me explain. The Egyptians were sunk. They were like probably the most depraved people on earth. As we see in, in the, uh, the prophets, the section of the prophets, which was read last week, the beginning of the book of Exodus, taken from Ezekiel. Ezekiel quotes Pharaoh as saying, the river is mine, I made myself. So how is it that somebody could say, oh, I made myself, which basically means I always existed, I am a god and uh, worthy of worship to the exclusion of all else, is because godliness that was channeled to Egypt was sunk so much into the forces of evil that the forces of evil took over. In Egypt, it does not rain. They rely on the river for all of their water. And there's enough water in the Nile River to take the care of the needs of all, I think, 50 million Egyptians that are living there. Or how many people live? 25 million Egyptians that live there. I didn't look up the population. And to grow all of their crops. And they don't have to look heavenward for their rain. They can look down. And say, this is us. Hey, we're, we're in charge over here. So in the killing of the firstborn, what was God sending a message? 
It was God was saying, no, 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 you're not in charge. I'm in charge. Firstborn belong to me. And if you're dedicating your firstborn to the forces of evil, like they did in Egypt, then as it says that there were nine, ten measures of black magic were bestowed upon the world at the time of creation. And the ancient Egyptians took nine of them. So they were really into this, steeped into evil. The Almighty said, I'm cutting the head right off. The first is always the best, right? The first is the head. It says, I'm cutting the head right off. You cut the head off, what happens to the rest of it? It dies. And indeed, as soon as the plague of the firstborn happened, Pharaoh said, get out right now, right this second. Like, That's it. I can't take anymore. No, that's all I can stand because I can't stand no more. And Moshe has to tell Paro, oh, wait a second, you know, no, no, we're not leaving at midnight. We're going to leave at noon, and you're going to make a parade for us, if you don't mind, after we empty out the entire gross national product of your country, which they did, such that Egypt was left, like it says, like a fisherman's net with no fish in it, because the Almighty cut off the head, killing the rest of it. And since then, Egypt went, Egypt went immediately from world superpower to third world country. Where's the lesson in this for us? What is this? This is a nice story, Rabbi Finman. What does this have to do with me living in North America or wherever you're listening to this podcast in 2023? We have to know that the first and the best always goes to God. That's why it is that the first thing in the morning, what do we do? We wake up. Men put on tefillin, we pray, we learn to start the day off in that form. The first part of our lives, what are we doing? We have children. We, have our, we are children, the first part of our lives. We go to school. We learn how to be good Jews. We learn how to dedicate to ourselves. So if it is, very interesting, if the head's in the right place, the rest of the body follows suit. So what do we learn from the portion of Vayera? Keep your head in the right place. Keep your head above being sunk in the mire of world. That's M-I-R-E. Sunk in the mire of, the, of the, uh, the gloop of the world. And keep above all that muck. Stay focused. And then the rest is easy. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back with a super dynamic Hasidic story. No, we're not going away. We don't have a commercial. We need another person to help sponsor the show. It would help make life easy, but um, we need another person to do it. And if somebody famous would like to do a pledge for me, this is where I had Jerry Liebman, uh, Specs Howard of Blessed Memory, would do the, for 24 years he did my pledge. But uh, I would do it still, continue, but I think it's inappropriate at this point. But anyway, so if you want to get in touch with me, the way to do that is at rabbifinman.com. And you can see all the wonderful things that we're doing at Rabbi Finman. We have archived editions of the show and classes, et cetera. We have the very important donation page, which we talk about every week because we have sponsors. But yes, it is primarily listener supported like people like yourself. You've listened to the show for 50 minutes now. You've enjoyed it. You would have clicked off, or maybe you put it on. I like to <laughs> I listen to my podcasts at double speed. Sometimes if they talk quick, I'll put it at 1.75, because that way an hour show takes only half an hour, and I get to listen to more of them. 
So I don't mind. We've got, listen, if you want to go back in our, through the archives and listen to them at double speed, that's fine. That's great. So it's all there. But you've been listening. You've enjoyed it. We need, we would like to continue. We are coming up to March. March is our anniversary month. We'll be on for uh, 24 years starting uh, this March. And, uh, yeah, no, 28 years, excuse me. We started in 1994. Wow. It's, uh, oh, it's 29 years it'll be in March. I can't, my, how time flies. I was just a little kid when we started this show. 29 years we've been on air doing this for you. So we need your help. Send in your contribution of any amount to rabbifinman.com. If you don't like internet giving, that's fine. Send your donation to The Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. And that, by the way, happens to be the address of Jewish Ferndale, and there's a jewishferndale.com. You might want to peruse and also see the wonderful things that are going on in Ferndale. The story involves the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, whose the anniversary of his passing was celebrated last week. Oh, before we get to the story, just a little bit of a uh, PSA for Jewish Ferndale. As we mentioned Jewish Ferndale, last week we had Rabbi Eliezer Finkelman talking about the failed Sanhedrin of the 1500s. That was awesome. It was a very, we had a nice moderate turnout. We had a big presence on Facebook and on Zoom. And it was a lecture that I felt once I listened to it that I was smarter. So we're going to continue that. The next one coming up is February 16th. Rabbi Baruch Cohen will be talking about the mysticism of Sfat. And uh, it's going to prove he's also an erudite scholar. Quite a great presentation. He's a very uh, lighthearted person and easy to listen to. And that's February 16th. There is no charge. Light refreshments are served. And... uh, Come by. We'll uh, we'll keep on mentioning it till the 16th, in which case we'll start mentioning the one that's happening the month after with Rabbi Shia Katz. We'll be talking about L'Chad Edi, and we'll talk about that some more. But Okay, so man comes to the Alter Rebbe. He has a problem. He has a 13-year-old son who is crazy. He just absolutely just, he walks around muttering incoherently, doesn't participate in anything, he's an antisocial, he stopped eating, and he can barely get water into the kid's throat, and he's just, they take him to all over the place. They go to the great doctors in, first of all, in Vitebsk, and they refer to him to doctors in Vienna, and you're talking 1780s uh, Central Europe over here. As far as medicine goes, not a whole lot. So finally, they've exhausted all the doctors, they don't know what to do. The, the, the wife says to the husband, the father, the mother says to the father, she hears that people go to Reb Schnur Zalman of Liadi for advice in matters such as this. And he said, people go to Rebbe's for advice on how to daven, how to pray, how to learn, if they don't think they have uh, proper faith in God. What's this guy? He said, she says, the Bible is rife with people who came to big guns you know, Moses and Samuel and all these people that, you know, for, for mundane matters, you should do it. So finally, she, she uh, you know how women are. Uh, what, what mom wants, mom gets. And so he traveled to Liadi and uh, posed his query to the Alter Rebbe and told him about his, the mental illness of his son. See, so Alter Rebbe said, I'm learning something interesting. He says, you should take two grams of 
silver nitrate, and you should put it into three tablespoons of water, uh, of, of olive oil. Okay, mix it up and have him drink the whole thing. It'll solve the problem. Okay? So he says, where am I supposed to get silver nitrate? So the Alter Rebbe said, it just so happens that in Liadi there's a doctor. So doctors were also pharmacists. You'll ask him. So he went to the doctor. And the doctor, who was obviously not a follower of the, the Rebbe, the Rebbe had a, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe had a doctor. Uh, his name was Rabbi, uh, Dr. Zelikson. And he would send people to the to the doctor. The Rebbe would send people to the doctor, and the doctor would say, "It's not me. It's the blessings of the Rebbe. I'm going to give you a shot of penicillin. It's going to cure you know this horrible disease that you have, but it's not me. It's it's the Rebbe's blessing." So, but this Rebbe, this doctor was not a follower, and he heard this whole story, and he said, "Silver nitrate and olive oil is not going to do anything for mental illness." But the guy pleaded, he controlled, he said, I'll pay you whatever it is. The guy said, finally, fine. So he put together this concoction, gave it to the son, runs back to his hometown, gives it to the son, wakes up the next day, nothing. Kid's still insane. He runs back to the Alter Rebbe and tells him what happens. And he said, most likely the prescription was made wrong. Go back to the doctor and tell him to make it accurately. So he went back to the doctor, and he asked the doctor, did you make it accurately? He said, what accurately? I told you this stuff is nonsense. I just kind of throw some silver nitrate. So I said, please, two grams, three tablespoons of olive oil. Do it exact. He did it exact. Gave it to the kid. Next morning, the kid is fine. No, excuse me. Immediately, the kid says, I'd like something to eat, please. And very intelligent. And from that point on, the kid was fine. The man, the man went back to the doctor and said it worked, and he said, "Well, what you miss, what you miss, what you witnessed here, was not medical science. What you witnessed here was a miracle because silver nitrate has nothing to do with mental illness. You merited that the Alter Rebbe performed a miracle for your son. That's going to do it. We hope you have a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you have a chance to educate you a bit." We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.